This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Some children are better at maths than others. Some children have parents who are more interested than others. But that's just the luck of the draw. Whatever cards you got, you gotta play those cards. That's you got one life. That's all you got. Today, we're taking a walk down the corridors of the world's strictest school. Of course, I'm talking metaphorically because if we were walking down the corridors of Michaela, a school in Brent, North London, we'd have to be dead silent. That's how headmistress and founder Catherine Burble Singh likes it. And given the exceptional results of the children, many of whom come from inner city poverty, who am I to argue with it? A lot of what Catherine says will feel counterintuitive to many of you, as it did and still does to me. I had the pleasure of reading the school's book, Michaela, The Power of Culture. Uh, The link is in the show notes to let some of these ideas slowly settle in. Catherine believes strongly that the child-centric philosophy today so popular in education is all wrong. The stance in her school is that if you give a child too much liberty, you're preventing them from learning making them far less liberal to choose what they want to do once they advance from school. Among the conservative rules at the school is the ban on any talking in the corridors, not something you'd imagine is easy to achieve in an inner city state school, with many of the children coming from broken homes and difficult circumstances. They eat lunch every day with their teacher and take part in serving it, and they also sing the national anthem. Detentions are handed out indiscriminately for any lateness or failure to do homework to its completion. Catherine is from a mixed ethnic background, as she describes in the podcast, but stands firmly against woke attitudes. Many of her students are from ethnic minority backgrounds, and she wants them to feel like they can do anything regardless of their race, rather than slip into a victim narrative. For her anti-woke stance and conservative school rules, she's received plenty of criticism online. To her detractors, she points to the school's results, often in the top percentile in exams. I can imagine that many of you will find her views controversial or even offensive. I think that's a good thing. We should listen to and engage with people with whom we disagree from time to time. This podcast has had a paedophile, a man who killed his girlfriend, and a couple of psychopaths. But for some reason, nothing winds us up like listening to somebody with slightly different political views to us. One thing that I don't think is up for debate is how much Catherine cares about the children at her school. I gather she's a popular figure there, and her tough love is exactly that, love. There are one or two things I'm not exactly keen on, and I can't say I'd have enjoyed attending such a school. While I do challenge Catherine, particularly at one point about how she turned up late to my interview, a punishable offence at her school, I'm not really here to give anyone a hard time. I believe I've been blessed with an intelligent audience capable of making up their own minds, and I rarely feel the need to criticise the guests who give up their time to come on my show. I have no doubt in my mind that Catherine is an inspirational person who deserves praise for her passion and the way she cares about the children at her school transforming many of their lives. Whatever your political beliefs or how you feel about education, I hope you enjoy listening. You'll find Catherine on Miss underscore Snuffy on Twitter. She used to blog under that name. Sign up for our bonus chat, which is really elucidating. Is that a word? I think it is informative uh, on Apple subscriptions, patreon.com or YouTube memberships. And well, here she is. I'm just trying to remember what I'd written down because I'd written down little, you know, one word answers to your questions before. I'm just reminding myself because I forgot to bring them with me today. They're at home. Detention. Uh, Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Sorry, people must say that to you all the time. Sorry. Two seconds. That's all right. (laughs) Bless you if that was a sneeze. Sorry. (laughs) I've got hay fever. In fact, I should take a pill so it'll kick in. 
Oh, mm-hmm. good. And you'll be asleep halfway through. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not one of the drowsy ones. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about uh, Michaela. Yeah. Okay. Well, we opened in 2014. Um, we're a secondary school. We're a free school. Uh, and what does that mean? We're just a normal state school. It's just that uh, in 2010, free schools came about, and essentially a group of people can get together, apply to the DFE and set up their own school. And it tends to be that they're either parent groups or teacher groups. We were a teacher group and we've now been open for seven years, which means we now have a full school um, from year seven through to year 13. And our first cohort right now are going off to university. So that's quite exciting. Um, The things that make us different, we are really strict on discipline, uh, very high standards for behavior. And also we're relatively traditional in terms of our teaching methods. We stand from the front of the class and the desks are in rows and the teacher leads the learning. Now, listeners might think, well, what do you mean? Isn't that what always happens in lessons? Not at all. For the last 50 or 60 years, things have changed quite a lot. And if you go into many classrooms, you will find, not in Michaela, but elsewhere, desks are facing each other and people move, teachers will then move amongst the desks and keep the children on task And they might consider themselves to be more of a facilitator of learning rather than um, a teacher who leads the learning. And it's what's called child-centered learning, where the children are leading it rather than the teacher. We don't, we stand very much against that and have rejected the so-called, the modernization of education over the last 50 odd years. And we've returned more to the way things were done in a more old fashioned way. I can't quite put my finger on it because I'm reading, I was reading your book and it's a fantastic book and it's really well written. Lots of different chapters from different teachers. Uh, the Michaela one is a second book uh, about the school. Um, and I can't quite work out if it's incredibly traditional or really avant-garde. And it's, I suppose it's, it's both, isn't it? Yes, you're right. As I was saying that, I was thinking, well, the thing is we've taken all the ideas from brain science, cognitive science that tells us how children learn and we apply that to the way in which we teach. So uh, people might misinterpret and think old fashioned means you just stand in front of the class and talk a lot. Um, that was one of the problems with old the teaching uh, in the olden days where teachers might bore children silly because they would stand up and go, no, 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 no. They wouldn't necessarily check for understanding. They wouldn't necessarily scaffold their learning. They wouldn't model what they wanted so that the children knew how to then uh, develop their learning. Um, all of these things we do. So the, the, the old fashioned bit of what we do is that the teacher is leading. The teacher is considered an authority. That is something that's rejected um, by too much of the educational establishment. I mean, obviously we're not the only ones who are traditional, but I would say traditional schools are in the minority. Um, and what you tend to find is it's not so much traditional schools, but traditional teachers. So in any given school, you will find a few teachers who are more traditional than others. Right. What is different about Michaela is that everybody is traditional. You will find excellent traditional teaching in every single classroom. That isn't necessarily the case elsewhere. And that's a shame because I would argue that traditional teaching is the best kind of teaching because the adult needs to be in a position of authority. Um Too often in parenting, for instance, parents think that their role is to be friends with their kids. That's not your role as an adult. You are meant to be in a position of authority where you are in charge. And that doesn't mean you can't be friendly. Of course you can be. It doesn't mean you can't be nice, but you don't want to be friends because if you're friends, then you are equals and you should not be equals. And that doesn't mean that you hate children. (laughs) It means that you know that you have a very important role to lead them and to help them develop into good human beings, into, into great adults later, because children are not formed yet. They need formation, and that comes from the adults who are around them. Mm, there's a lot of talk in the book, actually, about Roald Dahl and his depictions, I suppose, of the angry teacher. Um, is it Trunchbull? Is that her name? In Matil- is it Matilda? That's yeah. right. Trunchbull, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Matilda is the girl, and Trunchbull is the is the principal, the, 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 the headmistress of the school. Mm. And... Uh, and she's evil and mean and hates children and so on. And um, I mean, this really is just a silly caricature. I mean, I, mm. I'm, I mean, maybe there are headmistresses out there who hate children. 99% of them obviously love children. That's why they've spent their entire careers working with children. <laughs> yeah. You're not a trunchbull, are you? Well, 
I mean, would I be in school every day at, you know, at 6.45? Um, I meet with my SLT every morning, senior team every morning at seven o'clock. Um, would I be here talking to you about, you know, education on a podcast if I didn't love education and love children? It doesn't really make any sense. Um, but people like to caricature this idea um, because it's, it's easy, it's lazy, it's just lazy thinking. Uh, the reason why we have silent, so we have silent corridors, for instance. People say, well, it must be that um, I, I really get off on the idea of being able to march down the corridors and shout at children. Who says that? Oh, lots of people on Twitter or our detractors. Oh. They love the idea of, um, well, the, the Trunchbull idea. We hate children, yeah. therefore we're making them be silent. I mean, the reality is that most of the time I'm not even in the corridors. You know, when they're changing lessons, I'm having meetings and doing various things. I'm not in the corridors. But the reason why I want the corridors to be silent is because we are in inner city school. And in inner city schools where you have challenging intakes, the fact is that corridors can be really dangerous places where children get punched and kicked. And there's lots of screaming and shouting and running through the corridors and doors slamming and thrown all over the place. I mean, in, in some schools, uh, children and even staff are scared to move through the corridors. But, but they're actually scared because they're going to get hurt. That's why our corridors are silent. Now, some people might say, oh, but well, why don't you just ask the children to, to, to chat quietly and then it will be fine? Well, it depends on how challenging your intake is. And I went to visit a private girls' school up the road the other day. They don't need silent corridors. We do. And so... We need to trust that the headmistress doesn't just hate children, but maybe she's making a decision for her school that's right for her children to make sure that they can thrive and move quickly in the corridors so that they can get to their lessons. They spend a minute and a half in the corridors. And when you have children who have a reading age of a six or a seven-year-old, when in fact their chronological age is 11 years old, you need as much time in the classroom as you can get so that you can catch them up. And of course, lo and behold, that's what we do. Our, our results are extraordinary. You know, in, in 2019, when we had our first set of GCSE results, this was just before COVID happened, um, we were we got the fifth best results in the country in terms of our progress aid. So we're doing really well. Our methods work. So what I don't understand is if our methods are working with children who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, who desperately need the support from school in order to propel them into life to make a success of it, if we're managing to do that, then what's the problem? You know? Do you think um, that the results could be better because a certain type of family would send their kid to your particular school because they, they're really taking an interest in their child's education? Well, if admissions work that way, then possibly. But the fact is that um, admissions in Brent, where we are, but frankly, all over the country, doesn't work like that. You don't just get your top choice school. Uh, as interesting, as, as crazy as it may seem, uh, you have to put down your six top choice schools, which means, you know, there are only about six schools that you would choose that would be near enough for you to get to anyway. So the fact is, if you put a school third, fourth, fifth or sixth, you don't really want that school. <laughs> um, and so you have to put all those schools down and then the council will endeavor to get you one of your choices. And there's a lottery here that works for our school. And so uh, names are pulled out of a hat. You have as much chance of getting a spot at the school if you've chosen a sixth as if you've chosen us first. So lots of families who come here don't even wanna come here. You know, they haven't chosen it. Um, uh, and lots of families who have chosen us first do not get a place here. So, uh, and, and some people might think this is a great injustice. I think it's a great injustice because it does seem crazy to me to be putting families in schools where they don't wanna go yeah, and taking right. those places away from families who do wanna go there, but that is the system. So hmm. uh, given that that's the system, your point about, well, isn't it the case that the school will be packed full of kids who really want to be here? Um, that just isn't true. Uh, I wish it were. And, and, I, and I don't think that would be a problem. I mean, I think that would be a good thing that families should get their first choice of school. You know, I, I don't know why some people wouldn't want that, but I, 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 that isn't currently the case in our country. So you started as a teacher. Do you still teach? Do headmistresses teach and headmasters? They don't ever teach, do they? They can. It depends. I don't, but it depends... Some do continue teaching. I haven't done. I always think that I'm so busy and there's so much to do in the job. And teaching is one of those things I can outsource. What I mean by that is somebody can do that bit. <laughs> uh, but there's loads of my job that other people can't do. And I'd rather I spent my time on that because otherwise it just won't get done because I'll be doing teaching. You see? But 
I, that doesn't mean I, I, I think it's wrong for other heads to teach. I also think that it depends on your context. Um, so especially if you're in a turnaround school, you're trying to get things to be better. You want to show by example and you're trying to get teachers to teach in a different type of way. As it is, I've got a very strong senior leadership team and middle leadership team, and they are able to uh, bring all of the new staff on board with teaching in the Michaela way. So I don't need to participate in that. I mean, it's fine. But some mm. contexts, of course, would require heads to teach. So when you were teaching, is that when did you start to look around you at uh, schools beforehand and think like this isn't working? And uh, was it very frustrating seeing the sort of the child being put, I, I guess, spoiled, I suppose? Would that be a fair term? Yeah, well, worse, because it's, the culture is one of spoiling, but it's more that children are then um, abandoned. They're abandoned to chaos. Uh and the shire children get stamped on. Some of the medium kind of not so shy, but not not serious bullies have to become bullies in order to to survive. So because otherwise the, the smaller you are, the weaker you are. So you have to turn yourself into something that can be quite unsightly. Uh, and that's um, that that's just a real shame. And it's sad. Yes. So. I used to write in an anonymous blog uh, where I would come home at the end of the day and write some story about how little Johnny had had his money stolen or whatever it was um, because it was so upsetting for me to see that happening. And that was kind of a cathartic process that helped me survive. Um, and I mean, you obviously do what you can in your own classroom for kids. And I changed lots of lives and made a difference. But I always felt it was a real shame that the system seemed to... Uh, restrict all of us from making a real difference across the entire school or across across the entire country. Um, and then uh, I gave a speech at the Conservative Party conference in 2010 when, um, and you know, I, I, well, I gave this speech saying the things that I thought, which was that the system was broken, because it's no one individual teacher's uh, fault. It's nobody's fault. It's the system that's broken. And I tried to explain that. But I got myself into lots of trouble because you're not really allowed to say that kind of thing out loud. In the same way as you might not be allowed to criticize the NHS, the same thing with regard to education. You're not allowed to come out and say the system is broken. So hmm. in the end, I ended up without a job. I was told I'd never work in the state sector again. Sure. The only way I could uh, get back into working with disadvantaged kids in the inner city, which is what I'd done all my life and what I love, was to set up my own school. So that's why I set up Michaela. Wow, it's quite quite extraordinary. I mean, I can't even. Where does one even start with like? I'm just going to set up a school. Like, yeah, I'll just make a school. How do you do that? Yeah, well, it took a long time for me to come around to the idea. I must say, I didn't like the idea of red tape. I mean, I was a teacher. I just wanted to be in school, but it was. I had no choice. Um, mm. And well, you apply to the DFE. There's an application process. I had to get together with people uh, to have a steering board. Some of those people are still governors now. Um, and we went to it. It did take us three and a half years to eventually open. There were a number of detractors fighting us. Uh, we had, in fact, I just got some of these on my table. We had people handing out crazy notices like this to the kids, saying that their lives were in danger by being in this school because there was some construction work going on. And so you can see here, people's lives at risk and so on. So um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was very, very hard. Let me put it that way. But, you know, you persevere. My, I'm always saying to the kids at assembly, when they knock you down, you pick yourself up, you keep on going. And that's what I kept doing. And they knocked us down a number of times. There were three different sites that we looked at, one in Lambeth, one in Wandsworth, now this one in Brent. We eventually managed to get through in Brent. But each time we thought, we thought we were opening up in Lambeth. We had parents' evenings. I had mums who thought we were opening, who, who, you know, entrusted me with their child, say, you're going to teach my child. And then, um, and then we never opened. So, and it's a long story, but essentially we just had, uh, we had councils or people who were selling the building, depending. We had them fighting us all of the time. And we had a number of detractors who would protest outside with big placards saying, Tory teacher, they'd call me all kinds of names. My email was broken into, I had racist emails sent to me. I mean, you can't imagine, huh. most hideous stuff. Um, it was very, very hard, but you know, our school here is living proof of the fact that, you know, if you keep on at something, you'll eventually get there. 
going through a story like that, particularly having you know suffered racism and threats and things, it must feel even more beautiful every time you see sort of a student who who wasn't going to do well succeed. That's right. It's lovely. It's lovely. Hmm. Um, wow. It is every time I go to the school, and it's just an amazing school. And um, visitors mainly they're mainly teachers from around the country are always stunned by just how well-behaved the children are, how keen they are in lessons. One of the big things they say is, God, there's so many hands up. They're all so enthusiastic. They just love that. And so, yeah, it is transformational, not just for the kids who are here. It's also transformational for the teachers who come and visit and take ideas and go back to their schools. And I know there's lots of schools around the country that are copying many of our ideas. So we are changing the narrative, you know, which is great. Um, And, you know, there are other people out there also changing the narrative. We aren't the only ones, but it's a great privilege to be able to contribute in that sense to the to the national project of trying to reform our education system, because, as I said, the education system was broken. It's getting less broken as time goes on, but it is a long fight uh, and it's a fight because the culture, the name of our book is The Power of Culture. And the culture in education is one that is pretty broken, not just the system. And so trying to change that culture takes decades. You know, I fully expect that when I get to the end of my life, I will hand the baton on to somebody else so that they can continue. You know, it's a, it's, it's a long process. But I would say in the last 10 years or 12 years, huge strides have been made really in education in terms of uh, changing that discussion. Uh, before 2010, nobody would have had a discussion about knowledge versus skills. Nobody would have had a discussion about child-centered learning versus traditional learning. Like that sort of thing, it was all child-centered. It was all about skills. It was all anti-knowledge, anti-tradition, anti-authority, adult authority. You know, uh, that isn't the case anymore. Things have radically changed. And um, it's great to be a part of that. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Can I just ask, it's a, a, a well, I don't know if it's not really a personal question, actually, but I can't place your accent. Yes, right. Well, um, I grew up in Canada, actually. I was born in New ah. Zealand, 
My parents are from the Caribbean. My mom is Jamaican. My father's Indian Guyanese. And I was born in New Zealand and I grew up in Canada. So I'm a real child of the Commonwealth. Um, and uh, I came here at age 15 and I've been here ever since. So I consider myself to be British because I've been here for so long and it's my home, really. Um, having said that, you know, I still have some of my accent. Now, you'll think I just sound like I'm North American. But when I'm in North America, I can tell you they all think I sound English. <laughs> You've got the closest thing to that um that, that non-existent accent, the mid-Atlantic accent that they used in the 1930s and 40s in films that nobody actually had, because I guess you've got a mixture of everything. That's right. That's right. Ah. That's right. It's a, it, and it depends on who I'm speaking to. That's why I hang around <laughs> a bunch of Americans for a while. I sound more American at the end of it. <laughs> American. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so tell me a, um, a little about the difference between freedom to and freedom from. You know, I think people misunderstand uh, freedom you know, they, they think to themselves that uh, in order to be free, just do whatever you want. Just go for it, you know. And actually, what makes you free is having uh, various restrictions on your behavior, actually. So, especially as a child. So, if you're restricted from watching TV all day or from just being on social media all day, and if your mom makes you do some maths, that maths is going to give you the various skills that you need to be able to embrace that freedom later on. So um, it's about having a complex understanding of what freedom is. Uh, you know, we have a quote on the wall uh, from Virginia Woolf saying, self-control sets you free, you know? Um, and it's that people don't get that. They think, oh, you know, just do whatever you want. No, actually. Having the self-control to be able to manage your emotions, manage your desires, that is real freedom. Um, because otherwise you're a slave to your desires. Uh, you're a slave to you know, superficialities. Oh, look at the chocolate, I'll eat that. Oh, look, I'll just lie down on the sofa and I'll do nothing. Oh, I'll just go on social media and spend all my time on there. Instead of doing the hard stuff. And as I say, what I talk about at Assembly a lot is um, the idea that you set yourself goals I set myself the goal of opening up Michaela. It was a very difficult goal. And every time they knocked me down, and there were so many different times, I picked myself up, I kept on going. And that in itself is setting you free. It's setting you free to have bigger ambitions, uh, bigger goals that you can then go after. And you have some sense of what you're doing. You're making a plan towards that. And I think too often nowadays, we... We look for the shortcut to be able to give an excuse why it was we couldn't do it. And um, I mean, you can do that in life, but then you don't want to get to the end of your life and say, you know what? I grew up in the inner city and my dad wasn't around and I went to a terrible school. So that's why I couldn't do anything with my life because at the end of the day, well, life wasn't kind to me. Well, life may not be kind to you, but if you just sit around saying that all the time, you're going to end up with a really rubbish life. What you need to do is take the cards you've been given and then go out there and deal those cards and try your best to get more cards and to upgrade your cards. That, that, and no one's saying life is fair. That's the thing. People seem to think that when I talk about this, that I'm then saying life is fair. It is not fair. I guarantee it. That's the whole point. It's not fair. So you then need to find a way to make it with whatever cards you've got. Because if you spend all your time complaining about your set of cards, you've only got one life. So get out there and use it. And that's what we say to the kids. So we, we very much avoid a, a victimhood mentality here in the school where um, I think teachers can unwittingly encourage children to embrace a victim mentality because they go on about how life is so difficult for poor kids or for black kids or for, you know, kids who don't have a dad or whatever it is. And because they're inundated with this, I, I, these ideas, they then go around saying, well, it's not my fault, you know, uh, I, I, my dad isn't home. So that's why I didn't do my homework. It's not my fault. I came to school late. My dad isn't home. So I couldn't because it's human nature to look for the excuses. You cannot let children look for the excuses. You have got to hold them to account and talk about personal responsibility and a duty to others. These are values that we embrace here very much so, so that children um, feel uh, empowered, whatever cards they've got, they're empowered. One could have, I could have looked at myself and thought, God, I've been kicked out of the teaching profession. I'm never going to be able to set up a school. I could have said that, but I didn't. I decided to go to it and I wasn't going to let anybody stop me. And that is how every child needs to see their life. 
not be thinking, well, I'm black, so the establishment's against me, so, mm. oh, well, all I can do is go on a BLM march. No! I guess this is all part of the culture wars, isn't it? And uh, you've been outspoken against what, what people might call woke culture, which does yeah. seem to be this victimhood uh, mentality and probably has some good ideas at the heart of it, but I, I guess what you're well, saying is it just doesn't help. Yeah, the, the ideas are good. I mean, they're not bad. So the people who, who embrace that kind of thinking... What they're thinking is, well, uh, there is such a thing as white privilege, and I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I would only disagree in so far as I would say, well, there's white privilege, but there's also pretty privilege, and there's total privilege, and there's firstborn privilege. Because, you know, if you're a firstborn kid, you're more likely to do well huh. in life than you are if you're a thirdborn kid, you know? But we don't go around saying to all the kids, oh, gosh, you're thirdborn. Life is going to be really hard to you. And and that's why those kids stand a chance. But if you keep telling black kids that everybody's set against them, then they're not going to engage with the thing that's called life. They're just not. So when the people who are saying that, they think that they're fighting for a better world. They think by talking about stuff like white privilege or by saying that, I don't know, life's really hard for poor kids. Life may very well be hard for poor kids. But what's the point of saying that all the time? Like, what are you actually doing about it? Because I can tell you, I've spent more than 20 years working in the inner city, right? I know what I'm doing about it. What are you doing about it? And I can tell you that actually, by you going on about this stuff like this, you are actually undermining the work that we do. You're actually making it more difficult for these kids. And that's the that that idea is something I only wish uh, these, I mean, I'd call them kind of extreme leftists, would take on board these ideas and look at the results of what they're doing, of what they're saying. I'm not saying that there aren't some rich white guys out there, I don't know, flying around in private jets who don't give a damn about anybody. I mean, I presume there are. Who cares? Mine's outside. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, who cares? The fact yeah. is, you got one life to live. So grab what you got, work hard, and make the most out of it. That's the point, you know? Who cares if Jeff Bezos is making millions of pounds? I don't care. Like, who cares? I've got my life to live, and I've got these kids to save. And all of us should be thinking in that fashion. But too many of us, and this is where I think the idea comes, like, why are you spending your time on Twitter tweeting loads of things about how evil white people are? Why don't you go out there and, like, hand out some soup bowls at this local soup kitchen, you know? Do something. And the thing is, it's because they're not doing anything good with their lives, where they're not really making any difference, that they need to sit around at dinner parties and make themselves feel better about their own privilege and then go on about how X, Y, and Z is evil, like somebody like me. Well, I'm the one that's in the inner city working. So what are you doing? That's what I want to say. But anyway. Let me ask you something. I heard you talking on TV and one of, I can't remember what channel it was, um, but one of the either presenters or guests said to you but hang on my this was about exams sorry I've just gone on to exams my head's going all over the place but uh they said but my child one child is very good at exams and the other one is not and you was talking about why exams are good and I was wondering is something in your head secretly thinking well your child's just not as good is that happening oh I see well I don't know to be honest I don't know about that child I mean Mm. What that mum, she was assuming that her child had had lots of practice at exams, but he won't have done. I mean, that's the first basic point, which is that children hardly have any practice exams at all. Right. So and that's the fault of the of, of the schools, which is that they're not giving enough practice. Now, as a parent, best for you to try and give them them that practice and give them what I talked about scaffolding. So what you do is you don't just throw them in for an hour exam to begin with. You give them a five-minute test, then a 10-minute test, then a 15-minute test. You give them an easier test to begin with. You make sure they know. So our children, for instance, every week in every subject, they're given a quiz. It's a short five, 10-minute quiz. They're getting constant quizzes. Then they have assessments twice a year, a bigger assessment in the end of January and then in July again. And so when they eventually get to their GCSEs, they're well-versed in what it is to prepare for a test and then deliver. They've done it so many times. That happens to kids in in the private sector all the time. Seven plus, eight plus, 11 plus, 13 plus. They're Mm. all taking exams. By the time they get to GCSEs, oh, funnily enough, it's pretty easy for them. So it isn't the case that 
uh, isn't it weird that all kids in the private sector are graded exams? I mean, isn't that a weird coincidence? <laughs> Other factors as well, I suppose. It, on average, they might have had an easier family life and, uh, uh, yes. you know, that kind of thing. That's true. But I wouldn't argue that an easier family life makes you better at exams. It really doesn't. Now, I agree that it gives you all sorts of advantages in other ways, but it doesn't necessarily make you better at exam technique, does it? I mean, <laughs> exam technique comes through practice. You get good at the piano when you play lots of piano. You get good at basketball when you play, do, play lots of basketball. It's the same thing with exams. You do lots of exams, you get good at that. Now, obviously, you also need the content. You need the knowledge. But you need to be able to know how to take that knowledge and, you know, process it and then come out with the right kinds of answers when you're, when you're processing it. That is a skill that needs to be learned. And if you do it over and over again, you will get better at it. Um, it's just that exams is like maths. People say things like, oh, I was never very good at maths. Well, yeah, because you didn't do much of it. That's all. If you'd done more of maths, then you would have been good at it. Like, it's an acceptable thing to say. Wasn't very good at exams. No, actually, you'd be good at exams if you just did more of them. That's all. It's the same thing. So we have this weird kind of... Uh, mythology around exams around maths um around music as well actually oh you know i was just never very musical well i tell you you give me any four-year-old i can make the musical okay <laughs> you just need to get them playing some music i've seen it myself and i talk about this all the time because i show off about it but i speak five languages right but i learned the four other ones in my 20s and 30s um oh. Not that I'm 40. It sounds like I'm in my 40s now. I'm 32. But I learned them in later life. And I always say to friends of mine, if they're going to go away for a few months to Spain or somewhere like that, if there's any reason they might be going away, I always say, oh, you've got to, why not learn the language? It's not as hard as you think. And they always say, oh, no, but I'm not good at languages like you. And I was yes. terrible at school because yes. I didn't, I couldn't be bothered at school. And exactly. I didn't have the motivation and all that. And I found that if you do it every single day, you practice every day, nonstop, every single day, you become fluent in the language. It's just a fact. Exactly. That, yeah. there, there's another red example. Oh, I'm just not very good at languages. You, anybody can be good at languages. Anybody can be good at anything. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be you're going to be in the Olympics, right? Mm. I'm not saying For you know languages. I can't play basketball, but I could learn how to do it and I could play it really well. I tell you, if I really put my mind to it. Now, yeah, getting to the next stage of being in the Olympics. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking to be you know decent at something being able to go into a spanish bar and order a beer and you know some food etc you could do it but yeah. we are convinced i'm not very good at maths not very good at languages not very good at exams no you're not good at it because you never do it and you never put your mind to it let's say everybody took on your ideas and then all the schools started doing better and everyone did better at exams there's still a hierarchy isn't there so some kids would still be at the bottom uh, yeah. no matter how good the education is so yeah i what can you do why? Because your uh, goal in life is to make everybody the same. I, I'm very um, nihilistic, I suppose. And I just think someone's going to be at the bottom anyway. I don't know what I'm saying exactly. I'm thinking out loud. I'm just thinking like, okay. let, let's say we improved education across the whole country. Well, there's, yeah. there's still going to be some people who are the best and some people who are the worst. Yes. But that's it's, okay. There's yeah. always going to be. If I become a basketball player, I'm not going to be in the Olympics. Some of them are going to be better than me and some will be worse than me. That's okay. I mean, that's the case with anything. Yeah. No, it is. It is. Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have 20% of our kids leaving school functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate? I mean, mm. look, like, yes, there, there are some will be at the, at the bottom. That's okay. But if everybody can count, that's great. If everybody can read, that's great. Like, there are certain milestones that we want everybody to be able to achieve. Now, not everybody's going to become a surgeon. That's okay. We wouldn't want everybody to become a surgeon. <laughs> we need different people doing different things in society. The problem is, and which is kind of inherent in your question, is the assumption that unless you're at the top educationally, your life is not as valuable. It doesn't matter whether you're a plumber or a hairdresser or a surgeon or a CEO of some bank. I mean, who cares? That's not what's important. What's important is that you are a good person and that you try and live a good life. And so that's what school should be doing, is making sure that everybody reaches a certain basic level of education. Some will be better than others, but that we're doing it in the best possible way that we know how. And that's where I feel we're failing. There is a best possible way of educating kids, and we're not doing it at the moment. That, that's where we're failing. Um, but that in the end, of course, some kids will out outsmart other kids. But that's all right. That's life. I mean, it doesn't mean that your life is over. 
if some kid got a higher math score than you did, that's okay. You, you know, you'll do something else. He'll become a mathematician or something to do with maths. He'll become a banker and you'll do something else. And that's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Although if your exam results are still the lowest in the in the country, even if you're better than you would have been without this system, you're not going to get as many job opportunities. No, but that's okay. Like, mm. <laughs> like you can't make it so that everybody's the same. Like that's a yeah. weird goal to have. I'm quite, I'm a bit scared by you. Do you know? I'm a little bit scared because you're a headmistress. Do you see? I, I've shaved. I never shave. I usually have a big beard, no, and I've good. got a shirt on, look, <laughs> proper shirt, and I'm wearing a watch. You you're just. It, it, our general culture at the moment in society is to think it, 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 your, those assumptions are inherent in your questions where you don't even re, you don't even realize well, what is it that I'm saying because it seems unfair you're just thinking uh you know you're thinking from a, a point of view of but that's not fair if 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 Johnny and Katie are both working really hard but Johnny does better than Katie that seems unfair no, no, but I'm not saying that. I, I think I think that it sort of is fair because if you're just better, you're better. I'm I'm thinking from more of a um, I don't know. I, I guess a nihilistic point of view of like, oh, there's no point. I, I sort of, if I were you, I would I would be happy that my school does this because then you'll be better than the other ones. But if everyone does it, then you won't stand out. That's what I'm thinking. I'd be quite happy not to stand out. Give hmm. me that chance to not stand out. I'd love it if all schools were like Michaela. <laughs> How do you discipline a, a child? What, so there's a lot of talk of discipline. Is it, it's, most, it's detentions a lot, a lot of the time, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, 20 or 30 minutes detention. Um, they go in there, they do a bit of work, and then they go home. It's kind of no big deal, really. I mean, you know, people think that you're oppressing a child. This is child cruelty. I mean, for goodness sakes. You do a detention, whoop they do You go home. The kids don't care. Our kids certainly don't care. They don't think yeah. it's a big deal at all. Why is it? It's no deterrent then. Yeah, it's it, that's an interesting point. Uh, I would say because the detention represents the fact that you have let your teacher down and you don't want to let your teacher down. You want your teacher to be proud of you. And if your teacher has felt the need to give you a detention, that means you've let them down. And children, naturally, for, for teachers who they love and who love them back, they don't want to let them down. And that's one mistake that people make in thinking that all you need is a detention um, it's it, it's not really about the detention. It's about the relationship that exists between the teacher and the child. And uh, the detention is kind of a red herring in a way. It, it's the it's the it's the I'm so disappointed in you conversation that's important. Um, but they also need the punishment. So you don't want to just have the conversation. You need both. You need both there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. No, our children don't think it's such a big deal. But they also don't want it. They don't want the detention and they don't want to let the teachers down. Sure. What about if a kid is uh, late by a couple of minutes and, and that kid came from uh, a family that's a very difficult family? Would you give them the same punishment as everybody else? What if they said so-and-so just died or something? Are there exceptions? Well, there might be if somebody died, yes. I mean, but I would be the only person who would make that decision in the school. So it wouldn't be another teacher who would do that. It would have to come to me. But um but yes, what you're picking up on there is that too often in schools, we make excuses for children who come from more difficult backgrounds, uh, who live on an estate, whatever it is. And we say, oh, well, it's not his fault. He didn't do his homework because he lives in one room with his family or whatever it is. Um, and that seems to be a demonstration of compassion. And I would say that it is not because in the end, when the child leaves school and isn't able to read, it's because you, teacher, did not hold that child to account. So my assemblies, I will often say things like, look, if your parents aren't able to hold you to account, you need to hold yourself to account. You need to take personal responsibility. You can't depend on your parents to be there for you, insisting that you do your homework. If nobody's checking your homework at home, you check your own homework. If nobody's checking your equipment at home, you check your own equipment. If nobody's pushing you out the door in the morning to get you to school on time, you push yourself out the door. How many times have you said this to kids? I, I say it every day, every, yeah. all the time. <laughs> I can see it. You know, everybody is saying it. All of my teachers are saying it. So yeah. the kids, um, it becomes part of who they are. And then that means they get themselves to school on time. And that means that later on in life, it's what I said. You're not going to end up on your deathbed saying, well, my mother never really woke me up in the morning. My mother never really helped me check my equipment. 
So I never learned how to do these things. And I never turned up to my interview with a pen. I never turned up and shook their hand and looked them in the eye and knew about all those soft skills because nobody ever taught me. The fact is that they have to take personal responsibility. And some children are luckier. Some children, like we just said, some children are better at maths than others. Some children have parents who are more interested than others. But that's just the luck of the draw. Whatever cards you got, you got to play those cards. That's You've got one life. That's all you got. Unless there's been a death. But then you sort of find that they've had five or six grandparents when you start adding them up and you go, hang on a minute. You know, that can't be right. <laughs> but the thing is, you were, you were, if you don't mind me saying, you were a couple of minutes late to this. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. I thought I have to put on some makeup because I'm going to okay. be on, you know. And I thought either I'm going to be two minutes late or uh, and look good or I'm going to be on time and I chose to look <laughs> You would not let one of your pupils say that as an excuse. I knew you'd forgive me. Yes, well, I knew you'd forgive me. But um, yes. yes, it depends. I suppose it depends on how, how what you think you're playing with. You know, uh-huh. like what I mean sure. is you're making a decision, aren't you? And I knew yes. you'd forgive me. And you did. Yes, so yes. Fine. I have forgiven you. <laughs> um, let, let me ask. So, what another another um, uh, intriguing aspect of the school is the lunches, isn't it? And it's so the teachers eat every meal with the with students. Is that right? Uh, yes. So, and that's a really important bit. We've got what's called family lunch. We all sit down together and we eat together. The children uh, have a different role. They serve. So they they all eat from the same pot of food, and they serve each other the food, and then they mm. clean up after each other. And they have a topic of conversation for the lunch. And the reason we do this is that soft skills are just as important as the hard skills of GCSEs. So, yes, you want exam technique. Yes, you want to be able to learn your French and your geography and your history and so on. But you also need to be able to cut your food and look at somebody in the eye and be able to eat at the same time. And actually, when our year seven start, for Mm. many of them, we have to show them how to hold a knife and fork. We have to show them how to do all of these things that you and I would take for granted. Don't look them in the eye while cutting food because there's going to be an accident. Oh, I see. <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> then you look up and you, you continue talking. These are things that we, we don't even realize, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. telling you the skill that kids yeah. don't have to teach them. It seems quite almost quite ominous if someone's cutting their food quite aggressively while looking you in the eye. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just joking, though. <laughs> I'm just joking around. Um, so... Was it a case that, so you set up this school and these are all quite exceptional and interesting rules and regulations that seem to work very well. Was it a case of sitting down and going, okay, so in my school, which must have been quite fun, by the way, like, okay, right, this is my school. Almost like you're doing a uh, The Sims game, you know, when you create a world. And you're going, in my school, right. there will be no silence in the corridors. Teachers eat with the kids at lunch. Like, How did you sit? Did you sit with other people and, and just come up with a list of these things? And are you adding constantly? Yeah, so things are constantly changing. Some of our ideas come from other schools. Some of our ideas are ideas from other schools that we have adapted to make better here or work for our our cohort. Um, We've just, I mean, yes, when we started, we knew stuff like it would be a good idea to have a line down the corridor so that kids could walk on either side because otherwise corridors are crazy places where you can't survive. Um, We knew that... uh, we didn't want them carrying their bags around with them. I don't know. All, there are some details that have stayed the same, but others that have changed. The silent corridor, for instance, we didn't have silent corridors to start with, actually. Um, uh, we just came to realize very quickly that we'd better do that because actually the line in the corridor wasn't enough. <laughs> um, so we've changed things according to what's worked and what hasn't worked. There's no, no, it's illegal, isn't it? I was going to, no, I was going to ask a stupid question. There's no corporal punishment, is there? I mean, that's when did that die out? That that was like, my, I think my dad got hit and stuff. Yeah, 1980s. I can't remember mid 80s or so. That, oh, it was that late. Yeah, yeah, it was quite late. Mm. Mm. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I don't think there's any need for it. Like I say, all you need is detentions. I mean, it's actually mm. quite easy. Um, mm. Once you have a centralized system and you've got everybody buying into the system, the thing that often undermines schools is that not all the staff are consistent. Some staff believe in the system, some staff don't. So the staff who don't are undermining the staff who do. That, you know, I'm very lucky here because all the staff here believe in being a Michaela teacher. Um, And so it means that we can all deliver uh, consistently. And children love consistency. They love predictability. They love the fact that in every classroom, the desks are in the same rows. They know, they feel safe and secure. 
it's in that safety and security that they can then be adventurous, that they can then be creative. Um, which again, like we were talking about freedom before, people misunderstand what creativity is. They think just do whatever. No, 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 no. What you need is a safe and secure environment, which is predictable, which will then allow them the inspiration and the, the courage to be able to step outside the lines, you know, that, that, and that is something that's very hard to try and persuade people of because it doesn't, it, it seems counterintuitive. Uh, as are many of the ideas, frankly, that we promote here at the school. <laughs> yeah, no, they do seem counterintuitive. And I'm just, I'm constantly thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, the listeners uh, who will probably be sort of very split, fairly central, though, you know, I don't, there's not going to be any far left or far right, not many anyway, people listening. We've been taught for so long that like children need to just be like, be themselves and be free spirits and to be mavericks and back to sort of even James Dean stuff like that it was always like the rebel that's who you should be one that seem will seem almost foreign to English is is that is that you do the national anthem and I think three the three verses of it and I don't think anyone's ever gone past the first verse I think something about Scotland that was offensive or something isn't there in the second or third verse well we've got two verses and actually it's not I think it's the first and the third verse because I think yeah there is an issue with the second verse I can't remember anyway let me do two I mean um the reason why we sing the national anthem, we sing I Bow to Thee, My Country, we sing Jerusalem, is because we believe in all children being British and feeling like they're British. And in the same way as you, you know, football teams will chant things together, it brings, it brings a group of people together. It gives you a goal. It makes you feel like you're part of a family. Uh, and it makes us feel like we're part of our country, which I think is especially important when you're in the inner city with lots of ethnic minority children. And so many people are telling them that they're not really British. Uh, everybody says that. I, I think it's wrong. Um, I think brown kids can be British. <laughs> mm. And I think it's important that they feel that the Queen is also theirs. Um, so that's why we sing God Save the Queen. Um, you know, I myself, I'm not a big royalty person. You know, I'm not, I don't love, you know, I don't have, you know, mugs with Princess Diana on them or anything. Yes, you, know? you do. <laughs> I could see one in the background. <laughs> no, I can't. You know, I, it's just good. It's good for the ethos of the school. We have our British flag outside because we're all British and it's yeah. something that binds us together, you know, because otherwise we're all so different. What is it that we have in common? Well, we're all British, you know? Hmm. That's a perfect example, I think, of why it's so counterintuitive. Because as you say, I think the, fir the first thought that somebody, the, the reflex is to say, oh, this sounds very nationalistic, which you then link to tribalism and potentially racism and xenophobia. And then you're explaining that the reality on the grounds where you are is that you do have lots of people from different backgrounds and different ethnicities who, who might not feel like they belong. And by doing these things, you are helping them uh, to be more communal and, and more part of it. Yeah. So it's interesting. If I were, if this were an all-white school, would we still sing "God Save the Queen"? Yes. However, I think we would do a lot more narration around the ideas that um, look at look at all of these brown and black people who live here. They're also British. You know, we do a lot when it comes to um, remembrance. Uh, for instance, we do assemblies on how there were these you know, the Caribbean soldiers who gave their lives in the Second World War. We'll talk about a Muslim soldier. I mean, there's this Muslim soldier in Afghanistan. We talk about, you know, we, 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 we go through a variety of different soldiers and show that it isn't just about white people defending Britain, you know? Um, and, uh, and so the people who we remember for having given their lives for us to live in freedom as we do, they are a variety of different people. Um, if it were an all-white school, we'd be doing that even more so than what we currently do, is what I imagine. Um, uh, you obviously don't want to promote nationalism, but when you've got a bunch, I mean, all of our kids are black and brown. So, like, <laughs> I say all of them, most of them are. Um, and the fact is, I want them to feel like they're part of their country. You know, I don't see what the problem is with that, really. Are they mostly uh, ethnic from ethnic backgrounds, minority yeah. backgrounds? Yeah, there are some white kids, but generally speaking, they, they're, they're, they're from some kind of kids around here. You know, that's Brent. Yeah, and Lambeth, the same, I think, would have, would have been. I'm from quite near Brent, uh, but Watford. Um, right. Well, I think Watford is more white. Yes, it know. is. It is. It is. And then as you get into Brent and Harrow as well and that kind of area, uh, not so much. And then, uh, yeah, Lambeth, I was there. I did a college, I did a six-month journalism college at Lambeth Lambeth College. Thing. It was like a free thing. And it, again, yeah. I, I spent most of my teaching career in Lambeth. And it's, hmm. yeah, similar to Brent. Yeah. Okay. And 
yeah, I thought, what was I going to ask next? I'm just looking down my little questions. Going, how are you enjoying this so far? Very well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, is it is it is, is good? I just need to make sure you're having a good time. Um, oh yeah, religion. So is it? Is would you would you call yourselves a religious school? Re- religion is taught, isn't it, or religious studies? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have we teach religion uh, as any other school would do, but we're not particularly religious at all. Uh, I mean, we're a secular school. Um, although uh, people who do teach in religious schools will often say that we are more religious than they are. <laughs> And what they mean by that, you know, a friend of mine who is a serious Catholic, he always says that we get the human nature bit right. We just don't do the grace bit. So we get what it is to be human. And, um, you know, I suppose we believe in the idea of original sin, even though we don't really. So I referred to Christianity before. I am not a Christian, but we think in a very Christian way. We believe that uh, people... Um, have an inherent goodness in them uh, and a value in them that exists independently of what they do or how much money they have or who they are in life, you know, which which is a Christian idea. Um, And we, yeah, we, we believe, I mean, all of our values really are very Christian like, but we're not Mm. Christian. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Presumably you don't take the sides that are like no longer up to date, sort of the homophobia and stuff that comes from religions and stuff like that. Oh, I see. Well, I don't know. Do even Christians do that? I mean, generally speaking, they're all very um, modern these days, aren't they? <laughs> Some of them, not those ones who were asked to make a cake. I think that was an island, wasn't it? Then they uh, didn't want to make the cake. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But I'd say most Christians these days are much are, are very modern. Um, yeah. Because there are there are ideas in introducing if you are going to take it and it sounds like you don't take it sort of literally but there's a lot of you know an eye for an eye kind of thing and uh, things that maybe wouldn't work today and I, I I imagine you don't take on in the school as well. Yeah, but I think Jesus fixed fixed all that. So the New Testament um, fixed the stuff the eye for an eye stuff from the Old Testament. And I'm any expert. I'm no you know I'm not here to defend Christianity. <laughs> I'm not a Christian. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, I'm just saying that Christians will also often comment on the fact that uh, many of our values are Christian-like. What kind of school did you go to, by the way? But I guess you were back, was it, was it, hang on, you were in Canada then? Well, I was in Canada, but then I was also here. I, I did my A-levels in Leamington Spa. I was in a school that was an ordinary comprehensive school, um, which, uh, yeah, was pretty was actually quite a modern school actually we called our teachers by first names in the school that i was at huh. and in canada it was a norm they were normal comprehensive type schools um which yeah were pretty mm. yeah they were just normal schools were you well behaved i was always very well behaved i'm not sure everyone in in my in my classes were uh <laughs> they were um there was some uh, bad behavior. <laughs> there was bad behavior and there was, um, yeah, I mean, I was one of those kids who worked hard and wanted to get the top grades yeah. and, you know, liked the teachers. I liked the teachers. I'm wondering if it stems to back then sort of an urge to uh, eradicate the sort of bad behavior of, of other kids. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I was like I, what I imagine most of the quieter kids in school are like, which is that they just sort of sit there and they wish the teacher could get take control of the class and they wish that those other kids would just stop, but there's nothing you can do. So you just kind of quietly get on with your own work and you don't really know how much you're missing out on. You don't know how much learning you're missing out on because you're a kid and you don't know. It isn't until much later when you get to university and you realize in comparison to those privately educated kids, you are massively behind but you didn't know before you know when i was at school i was so tired all the time and that was a huge problem as well and it i didn't want to learn because i was just just my eyes were drooping my i was just they were heavy and they were telling me about oxbow lakes and stuff and i was just like i can't and that led to my misbehavior because i was in detention every week but i th- oh. i think looking back i think it was just so tired i just i just couldn't didn't go to sleep early enough Maybe, maybe. I get tired anyway. I got shouted at by, um, I had a psychopath on the show last week and he noticed my nostrils flaring 
and he thought it was a sign I was trying to stifle a yawn, which I think I was, but it wasn't. It's just I'm always tired. And he just said, he was like in the middle of talking about being a psychopath and he just suddenly f- like fixed me and said like, I noticed your uh, nostrils flaring there. Are you, am I boring you? And I was like, oh my God, it was really scary. But, you know, you must have kids, some kids who are just really tired and just really misbehave. Uh, they're on social media all of the time. It's crazy. The kids who go to sleep at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock are not tired the ones who are going to sleep at 2 a.m are tired (laughs) it's a very simple way of fixing it which is to just go to bed early the problem is is that we are not in in their homes so mom or dad has to put them in bed early and if they're not in the habit and if mom isn't kind of strong enough to be able to hold the line on this then they're up until the middle of the night best thing to do is not get your child a smartphone at all not allow them on social media then the temptation (laughs) is there and they can go to sleep and they can make the most of their school day it's impossible, though, because all the other kids have got them. Well, it isn't impossible. It's just hard. You're mm. right. It, it's hard. It's not impossible. And there are families who do it, but it is hard. Have you ever had to suspend or expel a child? Yeah, so we do suspend. But, I mean, that's, again, pretty normal. That's what schools do. Um, and, yeah, we have expelled a few, but fewer than what the average would be for around here. So... And again, people you would say, oh, you know, well, how is that? Well, what I would say is we take care of the pennies, the pounds take care of themselves. So if you get you get upset about the tiny little things, turning around in the lesson, not having your tie up to the top, tiny little things, the big things never occur. So when teachers come here and they say, well, what happens when a fight breaks out in the classroom? What happens when they throw their chair out the window? What happens when they shove and push in the corridors? That doesn't happen here, you know? So best thing to do is to look after the tiny things you sweat the, the small stuff. That's what you need to do. You sweat the small stuff. This is a, this is a question. It's not about Michaela. It's just about being a headmistress or headmaster of a school. I mean, what is that feeling like when you have to exclude, expel somebody? How does that? It's like you've you've had to give up on that child. Yeah, it's very sad. But I mean, luckily, it doesn't happen very often. But it is very sad, and that has to happen. But you mm. also have to think about the rest of the children you're in charge of. You know? Yeah. God. Do you? Have, I mean. I, th- I felt like my teachers were itching to like kick me out, but I'm sure actually it would have been a, a very difficult decision to do so. Yeah. Mm. And I doubt they were itching to. No. You know? <laughs> I doubt that um, they even thought at all about throwing you out. It's just that you felt that because you were constantly getting into trouble. Um, that's all. Uh, and it's a shame if nobody ever had any conversations with you to say, come on, we want more for you because we want you to do really well. You know, that's really important. Those conversations where you repair the relationship with the child and you try and get him on board so that he understands the benefit of the detention. Um, If you asked any of our children, any of them, the naughtiest kid you could ask, they will say, oh, well, the reason why we get detentions is that it's to make us better. And I'm pleased that we've got them. You know, every single one of our children would say that. They get it. But that's because we're constantly narrating it. If they didn't do that at at your school, then that means they didn't understand the importance of the relationship between the child and the teacher. Because that's what's really important. It's not the detention. That's a red herring. It's about that relationship. The child needs to feel loved. The child must know. They need to know that their teachers love them. I think my school had the the, the old, you know, as we spoke about before, you have the mix of the traditional and the modern. Um, in you know, I think mine just had the very old traditional strict bit. I, I definitely didn't feel love from many teachers. Yeah, the detention was just given and that was it and that was never explained anything. And, and you're right, in the very few times when a teacher would sort of put a hand on the shoulder, uh, it did feel really good and it did feel, as you say, and this is another, you know, if people are listening going, yeah, but this sounds too conservative and I'm not, it, I've, I've really felt like, wow, even though I'm messing around and misbehaving, I'm being an idiot in all the classes. When a teacher believed in me and said it changed everything and you never forget that. And it was always, for me, it was just seemed to be the English literature teachers at my school um okay. and that's why that's I went on to yeah I went on to do that and I guess I sort of felt something with them and I wrote, one one teacher said to me one day like you know Andrew you should do the uh, at the time it was called the advanced extension award a level which I don't think they even do anymore but it was for a couple of years it was like the extra exam that only Oxbridge candidates do which for Americans means candidates for Oxford or Cambridge um and that, I was never going to go anywhere near those places it wasn't even on my radar at all and just this guy saying, you should do this, the teacher, he was pushing me about it. 
And I was like, I almost told him to fuck off. I was, I just sort of went, we talk, get out of here. But did it, and then got a distinction in it, the highest thing. And I'll never forget that. So, so that's what I was thinking about while reading your book and reading about your school. And it's just that that extra care. And it's it's, uh, I, I think it's quite a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. Teaching is the best job in the world. Yeah, is it? Do you wake up excited for it? Yeah, every day, all the time. I love it. Yeah, I love the kids, I love the staff, I love school. Oh, there you go. I was a bit nervous talking to a headmistress, particularly such a strict one. And as you'll see on the YouTube version, I even shaved and I'm wearing a shirt. Catherine seemed suitably impressed, even if she did turn up late. Any complaints about her beliefs and stance on education, please address them to Miss underscore Snuffy. That's her Twitter account. I'm just kidding, really. Don't send her complaints and things, you know. I love how passionate she is about her children, the children at her school. Um, And the last thing she needs is to get a bunch of complaints. But if you are going to send her horrible messages, do please send me lots of lovely glowing ones on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. I had a great time talking to Catherine and I'm happy such a well-known and respected figure came on the podcast. Listen to our fun and intriguing bonus questions on patreon.com or the Patreon app or on Apple subscriptions or YouTube memberships. Lots of ways of signing up, supporting the podcast and getting extra little bits. You can also help by telling a few friends this week about the podcast or leaving a review on Apple, CastBox or any other platform that allows you to do so. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Karine Roumash for signing up to my YouTube membership. Several of you signed up on Apple Podcasts this week too, but I don't get your names annoyingly. But thank you for your support there. I got a nice new review as well from Carol G59 again. She's been sending a few. She's a she's a fan and I, I appreciate her support. Uh, she gave five stars and said, John Atak, what a great podcast. What an interesting man. Brackets, can I say man these days? Um, thank you, Andrew, for keeping me entertained and curious in these times of COVID and endless lockdown. You're very welcome, Carol, and thank you for continuously, continuously, continuously reviewing the podcast. Uh, don't review the way I pronounce words, but um, it, no, it's a pleasure to have your support, and it keeps me keeps me feeling up for it and motivated. Um, next week, I'll be talking to Chris Shelton, another former Scientologist to hear all about his experiences in the cult. He talks a lot more uh, about the nitty-gritty of the daily routine in Scientology, where he lived, uh, and the kind of uh, psychological and physical abuse and torture that goes on within Scientology. And then it's forensic psychologist Kerry Danes, who works with violent criminals, one of which stabbed her in the stomach with a skewer, a kebab skewer, Have a lovely week, um, hopefully better than that week Kerry had, and see you then.